Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 155 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Awakened State, an interview with Ashley Bobe. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, this is a really cool interview with a woman who took a very traditional approach to dealing with a tick bite and then her Lyme disease. And it wasn't until she got to a state of awakening that she was able to heal. Now, what I mean by this is she was bitten by a tick at six years old. Her mother, who was a nurse, took her to a hospital. They removed the tick and gave her antibiotics. Unfortunately, she got sick and then sicker and ultimately became chronically ill, but they couldn't diagnose her with Lyme disease for many, many years. She went to every hospital in the state of Missouri and every hospital in the state of Kansas and still couldn't get a diagnosis. Finally, she did get a diagnosis. And because she had an angel who assisted her with some financial support, and she was from a medical family, she was able to get in to see one of the stars in the traditional medical community treating Lyme disease, but she didn't get better than either. It wasn't until she went through her awakening and found the Buna protocol where she treated herself herbally, where she was able to heal. Now, this is a woman who lost her job and lost just about everything. And now she is healed. She's better. She has her Lyme disease in remission and she's ready to go back to work. I'm really excited to introduce Ashley Bolt to the Think Bootcamp community. So, hey, Ashley, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and I've been looking forward to speaking with you for quite some time now. And we've been looking forward to speaking with you for quite some time. So it's just a part of the excitement that comes along with uh, finally getting together. So Ashley, talk to us about where you are from. Um, I am from Kansas City, Missouri, born and raised. And I did live in Indiana for a few years, but again, Kansas City is my home right now. So I am currently in Kansas City, Missouri. So you are from the home of Patrick Mahomes, the best quarterback in the history of the world. Yes. So we do have the famous Patrick Mahomes here. We did win the World Series for baseball. You know, we won, um, you know, with NFL, we won that too. And obviously we didn't get to celebrate. So that was a big bummer. Um, But Chiefs fans all around still celebrated whether they told us not to, but I stayed home. So (laughs) Um, very exciting stuff. I think uh, I think it would be wise for anyone who has had a brush with Lyme disease not to put themselves in a position where their immune system could be further challenged. Oh, I don't leave the house even for groceries. (laughs) So, Ashley, talk to us about, again, what it was like to grow up in uh, Kansas City and what kinds of uh, dreams you had uh, during your pre-Lyme life. Uh, So growing up in Kansas City, um, I was always active. I was always, you know, out playing in the fields. I was riding four wheelers. I was active. I played a lot of sports. I played every sport that you can think of minus golf. I was not a golf fan, Um, but I played soccer, basketball, volleyball, swim team, dive team. Um, I was always hiking, biking, out playing in the dirt, you know, and everything that I did you know, I would be skiing, I would be snowboarding. Um, So I was very active. And that at six years old is when everything kind of got started. But that's what I was doing as a kid growing up. And um, so actually, when you say at six years old, things got started, that's when you had what you believe to be the tick bite experience that resulted in you suffering from chronic Lyme disease, correct? Correct. So I had um, I had a bump on the back of my right lobe. And to me, that didn't mean anything to me. Right lobe, right ear lobe? Right lobe on the back of your back of your brain. Okay. So is that so that that is where your hairline starts? Yep. And so I kind of felt it and I didn't think anything really of it. Um, and the tick had actually gotten so big um that it was, I would say almost the size of a dime at that point. It had been on me for quite a long time. Um, and I immediately showed my mom who is a nurse and we, she knew exactly how to take it off, making sure there was nothing else, you know, no legs, everything was attached. Um, and that's when, you know, she immediately rushed me to the hospital and they took it, they put me on antibiotics. I know I missed, you know, a good chunk of time in school because I was sick and then it was never talked about again. Okay. So let's pause there for a second. I want to get some sense of what you knew about ticks and tick diseases before that time. Meaning, were you aware of ticks? And was that something that you were checking for? And were you aware of tick diseases? Um, At that time, no. I mean, to to me, that was just a bug. 
and I knew absolutely nothing about it. And I'm not really sure anybody at that point in time really did, you know, that was in the early nineties. So, um, you know, once it was taken off, it was a common thing. You go to your doctor, they're like, yeah, it's a tick, go, go to the hospital, get an antibiotic. And that's basically all we're going to talk about. So, um, once so you said your mom's a nurse, right? So, and you were an outdoorsy kind of gal and you were doing all of these things that, uh, that young outdoorsy people do. Were tick checks a part of your experience? Meaning after you came in from playing outside, did you check yourself each day? At that point in my life at six years old, no, I did not. After that, yes, I did because we were still very outdoorsy. Um, I know when we went on big things like going camping and such like that, then we would check for ticks or she would check, you know, all of us for ticks. But this was just me out playing around. So there was actually no reason for it until it was actually found. But if we went out and we're like, oh, we're going to go camping and go sleep in the woods. Absolutely. She would check us for ticks. So let's talk about that for a second. So when you say there was no reason for it, uh, are you suggesting that the only time that you should be checking yourself for ticks is after you're going camping or someplace in the woods? Or is it possible that we should be checking ourselves all the time because we can come in contact with ticks in a lot of different places. Oh, you need to be checking for ticks all the time. Absolutely. I mean, you can be walking out in your backyard, a tick can fall from a tree. You know, there's the whole mosquitoes that your dogs can bring them in. I've had a dog bring it in. It was on the back, still had a flea and tick collar and still carried it on its back. And now it's in your house. So now you have to go to sleep if you lose that tick, knowing that there's a tick in your house. So if you've been bitten by a tick and you know what you go through, um, you're going to find that tick no matter how long it takes before you go to sleep. Um, so you absolutely need to be checking for ticks, no matter what age you are, no matter what you're doing, even if you're out cutting your grass, it could be as simple as that. Um, planting flowers, you know, walking the dog, it doesn't matter. You need to be checking. That's just the bottom line because of what you will go through if you do get bit by a tick. So your experience has taught you that checking for ticks is something you need to do every single day. Absolutely. So let's go back to your now six-year-old experience where you found this big tick biting on the back of your head, right along your hairline, which seems to be a pretty common place for ticks to be located with a lot of the women that we speak to. With the men that we've interviewed, we don't often find that to be the place where ticks are biting them. Interestingly, we do find that with a lot of women, uh, most you know, memorably for me is I remember Chris Newby, who's the author of Bitten, talked to us about how she was bitten in the same place that you were bitten. So Talk to us about what that experience was like with finding the tick and how you felt after you found the tick. I was scared. I mean, I had this, you know, obviously in my family, we have lots of thick hair. So it's really hard to, you know, look for a little tiny tick, even though mine had been on me for quite some time and had grown to a good size. Um, but even as a kid, you know, being six years old and feeling this, gigantic something on the back of your head. I mean, I know I instantly ran to my mom and was like, something's on me, like get it off. Um, you know, I went into complete kid panic attack at that point. And once she saw what it was, you know, she, we got in the car and we immediately left and went straight to the hospital. So it was a terrifying experience for me. So what happened when you got to the hospital with the tick on your head? Uh, they removed it and they gave me an antibiotic. I did uh, develop the bullseye rash. Um, and after the antibiotic, there was no follow-up. There was nothing because again, at that point in time, there was, it just didn't mean anything to anybody, especially being in the Midwest. So Ashley, where did you, where did you find the bullseye rash? Was it on the location of the bite or was it somewhere else? It was closer to my neck and my shoulder region. Um, and it was pretty, it was pretty big. So, you know, I know some of them can be pretty small, but it was right below, you know, my hairline. And so it extended through my neck and like onto my shoulder and back area. Now, did this experience you have, have an experience, uh, had a, let me ask that question again. Did this experience that you had with the tick bite have an impact on your health during your childhood? You know, I'm not really sure. It might have, um, you know, cause I started to realize things over the course from that day forward, all the way up until present day, just certain things. Um, I know that, you know, when I got sick, I, you know, contracted mono, I contracted strep, things like that were really hard for me to get rid of. 
compared to a normal kid who has not been bitten by anything, you know, two weeks, you're done. Me, it might take two months. Um, so I did start noticing things like that when you go back and you look at your timeline and we have books and books and books of records. I mean, just huge medical books on me. Um, so it was a lot harder for me to get rid of things at that point in time. Now you indicated that you have siblings. How many siblings do you have? I have a brother and a sister. Now, were you more sickly than your brother and your sister during that window of time after you had suffered the tick bite at the age of six? Yes. My brother, luckily for him, he has nothing wrong with him. Um, anything medical. Um, and my sister, you know, she's also fine too, but I got the, you know, I would say the brunt end of it, but I got the worst of everything basically from that point forward up until current day. So is it your sense that although you have genetic similarities with your brother and your sister who are both very healthy, the reason you were sickly during your childhood is because you had a compromised immune system triggered by this tick bite? Uh, correct. Sorry. Right, so talk about how your health changed and how your, your changing health impacted your pursuit of your goals during your childhood and during your early adult life. So um, growing up, you know, I was playing soccer. I played soccer competitively. I traveled with it. And, you know, anytime I would get any type of, I feel like I always have ear infections, the ringing in the ears, you know, that is just something that doesn't go away even to this present day. And I just kind of, you know, go with the flow on that one. Um, otherwise you go in and I'm like, well, you have a double ear infection. Yes, I know. Um, so you know, growing up, it just became harder and harder. And I started to get these really bad pains in my body and in my back, and they would just shoot up different directions. And so I went to a doctor when I was living in this town at one point in time, she told me I had a couple different things. None of that was true. Um, and then I got sent to a rheumatologist at the age of 20 in Indiana diagnosed me with a couple things. And then I moved back to Kansas city, saw one of the top rheumatologists in the Midwest, very well known as actually from New York. Um, and she diagnosed me with a laundry list of different things because I kept having all of these symptoms, all of these flares. And she kept telling me like, Hey, you need to lose this inflammation. You need to get this off your body. And I'm like, I'm trying, like I'm an athlete. I'm very active. I'm doing everything that you're telling me to do. I'm on all your medication. I'm doing all these things. And it just kept getting worse. Um, so that started to affect me in my adult life tremendously. So let's first talk about what it is that you were pursuing during your childhood. Prior to going to college, what was your vision for your future? What did you see yourself moving towards, at least in the career? Um, I wanted to be a writer and I love, um, I went to school for arts, which is great. Um, I've always been an artist. I like putting things together. I like building things with my hands. Um, I'm now at the point in my adult life where I can build farmhouse tables and, you know, stuff for plants and I propagate plants and I have basically a home of a jungle. So, um, but back then I wanted to be a writer. I loved writing about everything. And I had been a writer since I was a kid, you know, at six, 10, 11. Um, I know my mom had submitted one of my poems when I was a child and it actually got published. Um, so that was something that I wanted to do. Um, but back when I, you know, was going to college, that just wasn't really an ideal field for everybody in my family. Um, nothing against them whatsoever. You know, I get it. They wanted me to have a good job, good career, good things like that. So um, I did put that aside and that just became a hobby for me. So now how did your developing symptoms impact your efforts to become a writer? Were they having, were, were your developing symptoms and your illnesses having an impact on your writing pursuits? So um, if we backtrack just a second, when I was in college, I had a severe outbreak um, of alopecia and psoriasis. I mean, I woke up and my body was covered and I thought I was dying. Um, I had to make like emergency phone calls and they were like, go to the doctor, you're gonna be fine. And that's, you know, they did all of these shots. They did shots in my head, they did shots on my body and I haven't had them since. So it was a really weird reaction. Um, and present day over the last, I'm gonna say five or six years going through all of this different styles that we will hit and talk about here in a little bit, it impacted me a lot 
because of brain fog, because of neurological symptoms. You know, I started when I was right. I try to stick to typing because I can fix that. Um, but during those times, you know, if I was writing, I would add an extra little um, hoop on an M. So instead of having one, two, three, I would have one, two, three, four. So that severely impacted my writing, you know, and I've used a platform for a long time and have kept all of my writing there. I have books and books and stuff that I've been writing. You know, I've been wanting to work with Amazon to publish a book, but you know, when you go through these things and you have all these neurological symptoms, you know, and it's like, you have to keep editing and you have to keep writing, you know, I always have to send things to friends and be like, can you double check this for me? Because I always say line brain, um, or my control alt delete, which we'll talk about, but it's just neurologically, it becomes a huge problem and it doesn't even have to deal with writing, but with writing itself, I mean, that's just a whole other ball game. It could be speaking, you know? So yeah, it definitely impacted me. So actually let's talk about, let's talk about when you finally got diagnosed. Cause I want to build out with you how your life was impacted by your developing symptoms prior to the diagnosis. But let's talk about when you were diagnosed, how old were you when you were finally diagnosed with Lyme disease? I was 30, 32. Um, and I actually got diagnosed, um, on earth day in February um, in New York. And my appointment was with Dr. Richard Horowitz and my appointment was seven hours and 43 minutes long. And before we go into the Horowitz appointment, I just want to just point out to our listeners that of your 32 years of life at that point, you had Lyme disease for 26 years and it had not been diagnosed until you were 32 years old, correct? Correct. So let's talk about that 26 year window where you were not diagnosed properly with Lyme disease. And, and I'd like to focus on how your symptoms were developing and how the yep. developing symptoms were impacting your life. So you get the tick bite at six, you get diagnosed at 26. And I guess the first question I want to ask you is, do you believe that you were reinfected at any time between the ages of six and 32? Absolutely. So this is actually the most terrifying part. Um, so way before I hit New York, I, so again, I live in Kansas City, Missouri. I have been to every single hospital in Kansas and Missouri. And I've been in, not, I don't just go to the ER and they fully admit me. Um, and so I had, again, been to every hospital between two states and that is huge. And so not only is my immune system compromised, you know, I am having night sweats every single night. I am changing clothes two to three times a night. I am changing my bed sheets two to three times a night. Um, I have severe anxiety, even going to sleep or being awake during the day. Um, and I knew when I got to a certain point that it was going to be, we're getting in the car and we're going to the hospital. I would be hooked up to IVs. I wouldn't even make it out of triage, um, without getting probably 13 to 14 fluid bags in me because I was so severely dehydrated. And no matter what hospital I was at or what tests they were running, we've even asked them multiple times and begged them, um, just out of curiosity, you know, Hey, she was bit by a tick. Can you do a Lyme test? No, we're not doing a Lyme test because she has no symptoms of Lyme whatsoever. Um, and so I would be in the hospital five, six, seven, 10 days at a time. And they were just blasting me with antibiotics and something that I still hear in my head to this day is a group of doctors standing around and saying, we know there's a zebra in the room, but we don't know what it is. Everything goes dormant. We know you are sick, but we do not know why. And we've tried everything. So and that was, that was my story for years. But let's unpack that. So you, you had 26 yeah. years where you were, you were chronically ill. Yep. You went to every single hospital in two states. Yep. How many doctors do you believe you saw during that 26 year period? <laughs> oh gosh, I'm going to say 30 plus doctors. Now you indicated in your answer a little bit uh, ago that you asked to have yourself tested for Lyme disease because you recalled that you were bitten by a tick at the age of six and none of the doctors would do the testing. Correct. Why? 
they said I had no symptoms for having Lyme disease. And regardless of who we asked or, you know, why we would ask, you know, they were like, no, you have absolutely zero symptoms of Lyme disease. And we really didn't have a backstory and know enough information like we know today, um, especially me, my, I'm talking about myself and my family and every, you know, people involved. Um, but they're like, you have absolutely no symptoms of Lyme disease. Um, and it wasn't just being admitted to a hospital and being an inpatient. I've been to nuclear medicine. I've been to different types of radiology. I've been to infectious disease. I've been to different categories of the hospital that people have never even heard of. And I've been through some pretty crazy testing, um, especially at one hospital um, that was, I, you know, I've had so many scans, I've had biopsies, I've gone through everything, you know, my immune system was failing for a very, very long time, you know, I'm going to say three years, everything in my immune system failed. And so when that goes into it, you know, I basically slept on the bathroom floor for a long time because I knew I was going to get sick in one way or another. Um, and so sleeping in a bed, it, it's really hard, even if it's five steps to go from here to here. And at one point, you know, I was blacking out. I was having severe tremors that almost looked like seizures. Um, I was walking with a cane, you know, and then the whole brain fog thing, you could be having a conversation with me and I would just stop talking because I have no idea where I left off or what you just said. Sorry, so let, again, let's unpack now the, the symptoms. Between yep. the ages of six and, and 32, you had a number of different symptoms. Can you give us a list of all of the symptoms that you had and how they developed one after another? Sure. So um, I knew I could start to become severely dehydrated. I was throwing up. I started to have severe, you know, diarrhea. Um, I would have fevers. I would have night sweats. I would have day sweats. I would have temperatures. Um, my tremors would um, almost look like seizures. They were so bad. It started with just my hands and it started with my legs and they'd go into full body tremors. Um, I, at one point for a while, um, over probably a six month time frame, I actually started to pass blood when I would throw up. Um, I, my eyes would start to have the uh, vein burst and I would have blood in my eyes and it would go down into my eyelids, which is actually kind of a crazy side effect that a lot of people don't have. Um, and so that scared me, you know, because I, I knew there was something wrong with my eyes and I could feel it. And so when you would go and you would just do this simple pull down your eyes, like if you had just gotten, you know, a piece of wood blown in there, I was like, oh my gosh, there's actual blood in my eyes and things had been bursted in my eyes. So that was also scary. And so this is happening and everything that I'm saying is getting worse over time, you know? So I just gave you a, a pretty brief or broad list but everything starts to get worse and it starts to double and it starts to triple and it's getting out of control. And no matter how I may be in the hospital and they may have me stable in their mind. As soon as I get out, not even 24 hours later, everything starts again. Um, and so that was, that was what happened between six and, you know, um, 32, and that was, that was my course. That was my course for a long, long time. So now how many different types of diagnoses did you receive from the 30 doctors over 26 years? I, they told me I could have, um, well, my rheumatologist gave me, you know, I've got fibromyalgia. I've got this type of arth arthritis. I have, you know, psoriatic arthritis. I have, um, this antibody, uh, blood clotting disease, which I was told I would have for life. And that is now gone. Um, I have inflammatory arthritis. I have IBS. I have this, I have, I would probably say I've been diagnosed cause I've had it in my phone because every time I would go to a doctor, they'd be like, okay, tell me your list and tell me what medications you're on. And that would take you know, a math book to do it. So I just made a note in my phone and I said, here's my phone. Here's the doctors that I've seen. Here is the entire list of stuff that I've been diagnosed with. Here's the hospital. Here's the dates. Here's, you know, the prescriptions. And they would, I would just hand them my phone and be like, go ahead and type it in your computer because we'll be sitting here for a very long time going back and forth. 
So now some of our guests describe their pre-Lyme diagnoses as a misdiagnosis. And some of our guests argue that they weren't misdiagnosed. They were just misdiagnosed. They were diagnosed with a symptom that's a part of Lyme. Where do you fall on that divide? Were you misdiagnosed or were you just diagnosed with some element that was a part of your Lyme disease? I firmly believe I was misdiagnosed. So now talk to us about how these developing symptoms were impacting you socially, meaning how were you interacting with friends and how were friends interacting with you as your Lyme uh, symptoms were developing? I basically became a ghost for many years. Um, and so here's where it started. Um, I was working at a hospital and I came around the corner and the nurse was like, sit down. And so I sat down and my BP was like 53 and they were like, we're going to call a hospital. And I said, no, you're not calling the hospital. I will get my stuff out of the office. I'll drive myself. That's where it all started. And that's when I started being admitted constantly, 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 constantly. Um, and I was so sick that, you know, not only could I not keep up with my own body and my own thoughts and, you know, my family. So I became a ghost to my friends, you know, because there wasn't a, I was so sick that if you came over, you wouldn't recognize me. You know, one of my friends, the first time that she did see me and I allowed somebody to see me, I was skin and bones. And she was like, you look like death. And so I knew that, like, I mean, I was, ba I became a body and nobody was home. So for a very long time, I, I was nobody and I did not, you know, a lot of people still don't know my story and I have not spoken about it because it was a really traumatic experience for years, not only just for myself, but for my family members too. Because when you get really deep into Lyme and you have the diagnoses that you get um, and you have to deal with that, and not only that, but the medications, I mean, your world changes and you turn into a different person until you get the right mindset and you get on the right track. So there is a lot of people that, you know, there's tons of friends that still, you know, I've mentioned that I have Lyme and they're like, so what? It goes away. You know, I even had one of my best friends that works at a hospital and was like, you can't die from Lyme. You'll be fine. And I was just like, that right there bothered me. So um, but actually, it, it is true that in most cases, people, people are able to overcome a tick bite and are able to overcome acute Lyme disease. The problem is that there is a subset of people who suffer from chronic Lyme disease. And oh, that, the awareness of the, of the chronic disease is something that sort of gets lost in the yeah. belief that the acute disease is, um, is something that can be easily resolved. So um, unfortunately- so unfortunately that, you know, I, I think one of the biggest challenges we're calling the chronic disease and the acute disease, the same name. And I, and I think we have to deal with that as a community and come up with some other way of describing it. So that people are not getting confused between the, between the two diseases. Um, so let's talk about, about intimate relationships. Were you able to have any intimate relationships with anyone during this 20 year, 26 year window of, uh, of being sick and not being diagnosed? Yeah. I mean, I was still able to do things. Um, I did. So you did ask me, um, about, is there a chance that something else happened during that time frame? And the answer is yes. Um, you know, I would see my friends from time to time, but eventually I realized, you know, I stopped drinking, you know, because drinking, I would notice that I would get so sick the next day and I stopped drinking a long time. I completely switched my diet, all of that when we'll get into that. But, um, I did, I was able to see my friends and things like that, but I just wasn't as fun as I used to be. Um, because you know, you get anxiety, you get depression. You don't know if you're going to get sick when you're out there. You don't know what's going to happen. Um, and I still have some of those fears to this day, even though I am where I am at, you know, so am I going to get sick while I'm out? Is something going to trigger, you know, a food going to trigger, even though I know what my diet is, I know what I need to do. Um, so yes, you know, I've had very, very supportive friends. I have had some friends that are just like, it's a tick. It's fine whatever, you know, you take an antibiotic, you take this and it's done. Um, 
So I've kind of, like I said, I've been a ghost to some people and basically anybody in my life really for a really long time. Um, on my 30th birthday, I was in new Orleans. And, um, before this, I was not a vegan and I had went to an oyster bar and had oysters. And I believe I did pick up a different type of parasite when I was in new Orleans. And that triggered me again, because prior to 30, I was in the hospital after 30, not even two months later, I was in the hospital again. And I was sicker than ever. And that's when it, everything really went into high volume, like kickoff mode. So let's talk about reinfection in different ways. So my first question to you is, do you believe that you were reinfected with another tick bite that could have caused you to have a tick disease other than the tick bite that you suffered when you were six? Absolutely. Um, ticks can come at any point in time. There's ticks on the beach. I was in the beach. Um, I went to Mississippi and was on the beach, but I'm also outdoors all of the time. And even though I've been bit by a tick, you know, and, you know, going forward and no matter where I was in Colorado, you know, on a trip skiing or hiking or, you know, going caving, things like that, you know, after that first thing, after six years old, you know, checking for ticks became a current thing. All the clothes were stripped. They were washed. You had somebody, whether it was a parent or a sibling um, a partner, you need to check front, back, under the arms, under the legs, any hiding spot, anywhere for warmth. Um, and so that became a, it's still to this day, if I go outside, I'm coming back in and I'm checking. Um, Me too. <laughs> absolutely. It is something that you do not want to pass or miss. So um, that's kind of, that's kind of where that lays. So, so let's talk about that for a second. Uh, I'd like to explore with you how you do a tick check. What is the process that you use to check yourself for ticks? Um, I did see on your podcast, um, or at least one of your Instagrams, that certain, the yellow bottle with the black label, that is the only one that I choose to wear. Um, and it's not the off-brand Walmart, you know, this is a deed for ticks. Um, this one has a lot more potency, but I come in, shoes go off at the door, um, and usually uh, socks go too, but you go to a designated area, preferably somewhere where you can see where you are stepping instead of, you know, like a rug that is a shag rug where things can get lost. Um, I, if I'm going outside and doing things that I know where I'm going to be out, my hair goes up and it gets wrapped. Um, but everything comes off. And so you look in the mirror if you're by yourself. If not, then you have somebody that's with you. Check your back. Check every little thing. Um, I have tons of moles and freckles. So you want to make sure that you know your body well enough not to miss, you know, is that really a mole? Is that really a freckle? Um, and when you take a shower, make sure that you are feeling your head when you are going through there. That is so important, especially for women that have tons of hair. You know, you need to be able to feel around and actually look for that. That is so important. And when you get out, do it one more time. Be safe. The next day, check one more time, you know. And I'm not saying do it as an overkill. Just do it for precaution. So now, again, let's dig into this a little bit more in more detail. Do you think a tick check is a visual process or is it a tactile or a touching process? Meaning when you take all your clothes off, I want you to give me the steps you take when you're doing a tick check, you, you, you said you come in from the outside and you, and you strip all of your clothing off so that you can now check your entire body. What do you specifically do to now check your body to make sure that you do not have any ticks, which of course we know can be as small as a poppy seed on your body. Oh, it's not just a visual. You need to be touching. You need to be lifting up your arms. You need to be looking, brushing your hands up and down and seeing on your skin. Is there any kind of bump that there could be? You know, you need to be looking behind your ears. You need to be looking in places, you know, you know, it, even inside your ears, just stick your fingers inside your ears, look behind your earlobes, you know, turn around, make sure that there's nothing on your back. Look in between your toes, look in, you know, behind your kneecaps usually specific places that you can't look or see. So you need to be feeling if you need a mirror, get a mirror. Um, so it's not only visual, it's also physical. So you need to be checking every single space that you can check. So a tick check is really more a tactile check where you're using your fingers to rub across your body to see if you have any bumps. And Absolutely. 
it's visual, right? So, but it's largely it's largely a a tactile experience rather than a visual experience because your eyes are not going to be able to see something that small. It's something that you have to feel, and 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 because we have we have very fine uh, sense of of touch with our first three and a half fingers, which is actually our median nerve, that's where we're going to be able to locate any ticks that are on our body. So I, I appreciate you going through that with, with me. Actually, we've ne actually never had that kind of detail about tick checks with anyone before you. So uh, that this was, this has been um, very interesting. So now let's, let's move forward. Talk to us more about, again, uh, how else this was affecting, you said it was affecting you with your friendships. Uh, you know, let's talk about how, how uh, your Lyme disease journey, your pre-diagnosis Lyme disease journey was affecting your family. You said it affects the entire family. How does it, how did your 26 years of undiagnosed Lyme disease impact your family? Uh, well, money's one because you're in the hospital, you're on all these antibiotics. Um, you're, you know, I eventually, when I was in the hospital so much and, you know, they're running all these tests and doing all these things, you know, you've got a cot, you've got a chair, you know, you've got your mom next to you, you've got a family member flying in. And, you know, I eventually just started saying, go home and sleep in your own bed. You know, they're going to do what they're going to do. I am hooked up. They come in and they check me all throughout the night. They run vitals, they take blood. You're not sleeping. So, I mean, that kind of impact, between medical and financial, um, that affected, you know, that affected me, them, um, lack of sleep, emotion, worry, you know, um, because before I made it to New York and all these hospitals that weren't working, you know, the next stop was, you know, the words that came out of my mouth, my mom's mouth was I'm putting her in the car and we're going to the Mayo clinic because my body was shutting down. Um, the more that I was admitted and the more that we tried, the worse that I got, um, you know, I was not able to eat food. I didn't want to drink water. Um, I basically lived on shakes for the longest time. And even though I'm a vegan and I do juicing and all these things, I know people incorporate having shakes. I can't even think of a shake to this day because I was on them for so long. Um, and, you know, so when you're going through these things and you have all these neurological symptoms and a lot of them you can't control, you know, I've blacked out in front of my niece before. She was like, can I have a glass of water? You know, so I struggled to get up. I was going to get her a glass of water. I blacked out in front of my niece, you know, and at that time she was young. So that was absolutely terrifying for her. Um, I was going to reach for a bowl and my mom happened to be sitting not too far from me. And when my hand went up, I could feel it coming. It was like a wave of kinetic sand that started at my feet and went all the way up to my head. And as soon as I put my arm to grab this bowl, I blacked out, the bowl dropped, it broke and she came running up. So, I mean, this affects your family in so many different ways, um, let alone your friends. You know, what do you tell your friends? You know, if your friends come over to see you, are you gonna be in the bathroom the whole time sick? Are they gonna see what you look like? Are they gonna see all the medication that you're taking? I mean, at one point in time, as um, some pictures that I've showed you, you know, I was not well enough in my head to write down all of these pills and make sure I got them correctly. Um, so, I mean, it impacts everybody in, in so many different ways. Was there ever a time where you believe your family members, any of your family members doubted whether or not you were physically sick? Um, no, just because they could see it. I mean, it was written all over my face, you know, and I would go through periods where I would lose 10 pounds in a week. I would lose 26 pounds in two weeks, and then I would gain some back. And then just the random symptoms that kept getting worse. And the doctors were like, this will fix it. And it kept getting worse and it kept getting worse. So there was no doubt in their mind that there was something wrong. They just couldn't figure it out. And no other doctor around here could either. So, but when the doctors weren't able to figure it out and they kept talking about the zebra in the room, was there any time in your mind, whether or not you questioned if you were physically sick or you're suffering from some form of mental illness? Um, sure. That runs through your mind. Um, you know, and I had spoken to somebody and I'm like, Hey, I'm really struggling, you know, in my head because I don't know what's going on. No one else knows what's going on. My family doesn't know what's going on. I know these symptoms are here. Um, because you go through extreme anxiety, you go through depression, you go through all of these different things. Um, 
And I was really, really having a hard time just even throughout the day. Like I counted down the minutes. I looked at the clock probably all day long, just waiting for the day to be over because I was so exhausted and just mentally tired because I didn't know what was wrong. I spent a lot of days crying, tons of days. I'm talking about months to years crying all the time because I did not know what was going on. And I was so tired of going to the doctor. You know, I started to become and have a fear of going to the doctor, of being hooked up to IVs, of hearing that monitor and all the monitors beeping all day long, all night long. You know, so when they're like, we have to take you to the hospital because you're at that point where you're a dehydration, not eating, not drinking, so on and so forth. You know, I started to become fearful because I didn't want to do that whole process again. So yeah, it was absolutely terrifying. And so, yeah, I questioned myself, like what is going on? So Actually, did this, did this um, undiagnosed window of, of illness have an impact on your educational experience? And were you betrayed by any teachers or professors who you were uh, studying with during that window of time? Um, no, so I had actually passed college at that point in time. Um, so I was just in the field working, you know, I was in the business world. Um, it did impact me with my job um, because I was at work and I would be pushing through work. I would be pouring sweat. I would be running fevers. You know, I knew I wasn't contagious because I was always around people um, and they would never get sick. Um, and so I'd be pushing, I'd be pushing, I'd be pushing. And over time I actually developed, you know, because I was stressing myself out, not knowing what it was, I had stressed myself out. I gave myself three ulcers at the exact same time. And so I had to be admitted for that. And they were like, we're lucky you came in when you did, because I tried to, again, I had a fear of doctors. So I was trying to go to like a PCP. I was trying to go to a urgent care, urgent care and just walk in. But when you say abdominal pain and all these other things, they're like, no, you have to go to the ER. So I barely made it to the ER because again, I drove myself and they were like, we're admitting you now. And when they did, they went in and they were like, you have three really bad bleeding ulcers. And it was because I was stressing myself out. So it, it affected my work life, you know? Well, you weren't really stressing yourself out. It was the doctors that were stressing you out by failing to properly True. diagnose you, right? So we, we, we know that stress has a negative impact on your immune system. So you have this, you have Lyme disease from when you're six years old. It compromises your immune system. You're picking up all kinds of bugs that are taking a long time for you to heal during your childhood from. You, you now have, you go to doctor after doctor after doctor. They're not properly diagnosing you, which is causing you more stress, which is causing you to get sicker, which is causing you more stress, which is causing you to get sicker. And then you now have these ulcers and then you crash, right? That's exactly right. And once I, cr and that's the thing, once you get to a certain point and you crash, you crash hard and you crash without a helmet. So talk to us about what the crash was like, both physically and emotionally emotionally was probably the worst time of my life. I had never felt the emotions that I felt. Um, and you know, my mom was terribly, you know, concerned and so was my dad. So was my brother. So was my sister. So were my nieces and nephews, you know, they were all writing me cards. Um, it's a huge, it's a huge thing. You know, you don't know what's going on in your body. No one seems to be helping you. You're getting all these misdiagnoses. So you go to one hospital and they're like, you have this, or we don't know what you have. So we're going to refer you over here. And then you end up at a different hospital and they're like, no, this doctor's wrong. You have this. Um, and so you kind of ping pong. But for me, this ping pong went between two states and all these different hospitals. And, you know, so when you crash and, you know, back to the emotional part, you have no idea what's going on, you know? And so in your head, you know, at my point, I thought I was like, my body's going to give out. Like every night that I went to sleep, um, I thought my body was going to quit on me. That's how bad I was emotionally and mentally. Um, and at that point I was just like super, super depressed. And my mom knew that I was not doing good. And so she would actually come down two or three times a night, which meant she was not sleeping just to make sure that I was still breathing. 
just because, you know, my BP kept dropping. I was doing the night sweats. My face was getting skinnier. You would see all of the bones in my face. I was having tremors that looked like seizures. You know, it would take four grown men at the hospital to hold my legs down and hold my arms down from my tremors. Um, and I'm talking about four very big men. So she would come down in the middle of the night just to make sure that is my daughter, is my baby still breathing? You know, are we okay? Is she okay? Just because it got so severe, all of my symptoms, all of the time, you know, so when you crash and your immune system gives out, you know, she came down being a nurse and being like, I'm scared. I need to check. Now, Ashton, you shared with us in the pre-interview questionnaire that there was this point where your brain and your immune system betrayed you together. And that activated the fight or flight mode in you. Talk to us about that experience and that, and that observation you made about being betrayed by your brain and your immune system together. So um, that is huge in the Lyme disease community. Fight or flight is the biggest deal that you will ever come to if you have chronic Lyme disease. Um, and it needs to be chronic Lyme disease. So um but that could be anything, even for, you know, different, different types of diseases that are out there. Fight or flight is huge. If you let your brain go so far into saying, Hey, you're not going to make it, or, Hey, you have all of this wrong with you. And it's telling you to give up or it's telling you to let go or, you know, give in, you know, your brain is basically the pilot and your brain is controlling everything. So when your brain takes control and you let that go, and you don't fight back, you know, mentally yourself, like you fight this, like I'm gonna wake up today, I'm gonna eat this apple or I'm gonna drink this shake. That is a huge difference. So if you give in and you lose, you know, and that's where I was at that point in time where fight or flight mode came in, you know, my body was like, I can't fight anymore. And so everything just started failing from everything I've already said to a scale that went even worse. Um, and so I was not able to control anything in my body. I was not able to control what happened um, when it came to like just immune system, you know, related stuff, um, temperatures, everything else. Um, when it came to emotions, emotions were not able to be controlled. Um, I was, you know, you talk about anxiety and depression that amplified by 500. So everything that I had, I was, my body was tired and was like, we quit. And if you quit, you're in really big trouble. And so I had to change my mindset and it took me a while and I had to fight to get there, but you had to change your mindset. Like that has to change. You have to know that you have to fight through this. Otherwise your body's going to be like, okay, well, your brain says we're quitting. So goodbye. So actually, let's talk a little bit more about this fight or flight experience, right? So when you're in fight or flight, you no longer can think cognitively, right? You're to the point where you're either fighting, fleeing, freezing or fainting, right? That's it. You have only four different responses and your body went into this fight or flight mode and you are now either frozen because you were, because you were unable to do anything other than these basic actions when your survival software triggered, or you were almost fainting. Like there was just like nothing left, right? You were just looking to go back to bed and knowing that you couldn't even sleep, but you wanted to go back to bed. You were just sort of not in any way thinking about the next step you'd need to take in order to be able to get better. Right. And that was it. It was basically, if, if that's the word you want to use is fainting. I was, I was bedridden for the longest time. My body said, no, um, nothing was of interest to me. You know, a TV could be on a movie could be on. I had absolutely no interest in it. I couldn't even hear it. It doesn't matter how long it was on, how loud it was on or what, whatever was going on. Um, it, I was done. I was bedridden and there was no fighting at that point in time. So how did you get from this now bottom of your experience to now a diagnosis? What was that path like? And how did you get from, you know, being so sick that you couldn't think to now getting to a point where you could get a diagnosis? I had a, um, I will just, I speak about her later, but I do have somebody that, I call my guardian angel and she constantly sent me messages and she was like, I think you need to watch this movie. I think that you need, and one of the movies was heal. Um, and so 
uh, I would watch that and she would always send me messages. And so she went to like Oprah's 2020 vision to her. And so she would send me emails and my mom would read it to her. And she was like, you have to get up. You have to go out. You have to go walk. You have to be positive. She goes, I know you're spiritual. I know you meditate. You need to get back into that. And so, you know, I did think about it and I thought about it and I thought about it, but then I was like, I have to do this. Like, if I want to beat this, if I want to be here today, I have to start doing these things because this person was also bit by a tick and her husband was bit by a tick and all three of her kids were bit by a tick. And so she knows from experience, you know, she wasn't just speaking out of the thin blue air, you know, she knew exactly what had to happen and where I was. Now, was this before or after your diagnosis? Uh, this is before my diagnosis. So how did you locate your guardian angel before your diagnosis? And how did that get you to your diagnosis? Um, so my guardian angel actually came through a friend um, of my brother's. And my brother was like, my sister is having all of these symptoms and we cannot keep her out of the hospital. Um, I strongly think that it is tick related. And, you know, would you mind reaching out to her and just kind of sharing your experiences? Because I know a lot of your experiences and the things that she is experiences, um, experiencing is exactly like what you went through. And I know she was diagnosed with this when at the age of 20. And I, you know, firmly believe she was misdiagnosed because everything that they've done has not helped her for the past 12 years. And so we stayed in contact. So talk about how finding someone who had an experience with Lyme disease allowed you to get out of the fight or flight mode or work through the fight or flight mode so you could get to the point where you were seeing someone who could diagnose you with Lyme disease. It was a game changer, you know, because nobody else in my family had it. I was the only one that had it. I'm the youngest of everybody. Um, I don't know any of my friends that have it. You know, none of the doctors know what I have. They don't believe that I have anything. They don't know what I have. I don't know what I have. But my symptoms, when we started talking, she was like, I have these symptoms. I have this, or my kids had this, or my husband had this. And she told me what she had to do to get through her journey. And just by listening to somebody who was relatable was completely game changing because I was like, I finally feel like I am understood. I feel like somebody is listening because none of the doctors were listening. And it's not all in your head. Yeah, it was. So I, you know, it started to make sense and I was just like, okay, you know, so over time it did take time. You know, I, I wasn't able to get up and be like, I'm going to go walk this day and I'm going to read this book and I'm going to meditate twice a day. I'm going to do all these things. You know, it what I had to be progressive with it, you know? Okay. So so let's talk about how you got to the point where you were diagnosed. Where were you diagnosed finally with Lyme disease after 26 years of suffering? Um, so after all the hospitals between the two states and my mom was, you know, getting ready to throw me in the car and saying, we're driving to the Mayo Clinic or we're driving to the next hospital, you know, um, that's like the Mayo Clinic because my body was giving out. Um, I was, I ended up in New York and my doctor is Dr. Richard Horowitz. Um, and I was diagnosed right before my birthday. Um, and it was exactly on earth day. And my appointment was seven hours and 43 minutes long. And how is your experience with Dr. Horowitz different than all of the other 30 doctors you had seen over 26 years? <laughs> um, a, he believed me right away. Um, and there was some signs he, you know, as soon as we went in, because he already had my medical records and he was going through everything and he was like flipping through pages and he was like, I don't think we have this, 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 or this, you know? And then he would be like, I can't believe they said this, 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 or this, um, you know? And I told him the stories about being bit by a tick. I told him about being in new Orleans and an oyster and everything else. And he actually lifted up a part of my shirt on my side where a stretch mark would be. And I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but stretch marks only go one way. And the ones on my side go the opposite way. And he goes, if any good Lyme doctor would have taken a look, he goes right there as proof that you have Lyme disease. And I was just dumbfounded myself um, because that is such a terrifying thing to know that that's there um, just in your mind, physically, mentally. Um, but he went through and, you know, he took 43 plus vials of 
blood. We did the H. pylori bags, you know, he did the complete physical, but just by doing simple things and looking through my records and then doing all the testing, you know, and it came back and I had, you know, the three different types that in itself was a relief, but I also knew I had a huge battle in front of me. Well, talk to us about first how it was a relief now that you had a diagnosis. It was a relief that I asked to be tested for Lyme just out of random at the hospitals and they wouldn't do it. And the zebra in the room that they were looking for, because I think a lot of people in the Lyme community now know that Lyme can go dormant. You know, you can get a test this day and these bands can alarm. And then the next time you get these bands alarm. Um, and so I was kind of a rare case because I kept having these different bands alarm at different times. And then like some of them would be quiet, um, but it was a relief knowing, um, it's, I'm not gonna say it's the best relief, but it was a relief knowing that I had a name to what has been happening my entire life. So let's talk about what your plan is now. So Dr. Horowitz gives you your diagnosis. You have the, the emotional relief that you now have a plan forward. What was your plan? Um, my plan was to, you know, A, my emotional relief. Um, after I had talked to him, I excused myself from the room and I went into the bathroom. I actually took my jacket off and I put it in front of my face and I screamed as loud as I could and started crying. <laughs> um, but I, you know, he had this regimen that he wanted me to be on and it was between antibiotics and supplements. Um, and so that was the plan that we had started with, um, when I was leaving, you know, that office and everything got sent off. My test came back. He typed everything out over that appointment. You know, he records the appointments, he gives you the full chart. Um, and then, you know, when everything comes back and shows you, you know, what you have and stuff like that. Um, so I, I left that day with, you know, at least the start of all the, you know, herbs and stuff like that, that he has on site and on hand and everything was sent because I was in New York for probably another seven days. And so I went to the pharmacy and picked up certain things um, that I'd be able to get before I came back to Missouri. So let's, let's shortcut this portion of your journey and, and just share with the audience, did you ultimately get into remission through working with Dr. Horowitz? I did not. So where did you go after not finding the success you were hoping to find through Dr. Horowitz? So once I became aware of everything that was going on in the Lyme community, um, I was doing this treatment with Horowitz and I was not getting better. I was getting worse. And I am a firm believer that I have had so many antibiotics in my body. And no matter what, my last straw with him was the minocycline. Okay. Um, I had a, a sheet could not go across my body without me screaming in pain. And, you know, he was like, we haven't even got to the, you know, the worst or the strongest of the treatment that, you know, I have. And I'm like, there's absolutely no way my body can handle this. I know my body now and there's no way I can do it. Um, and even some of his herbs, you know, we would write down, you know, um, everything was labeled a walk-in closet was turned into a walk-in pharmacy. And, you know, my mom would make labels and do all of these things. And, you know, certain things weren't working. So I redirected, I went out, I bought books, I did research, my family did research. Um, I came across the Buna protocol and, you know, he has all this information that is free. And actually Dr. Horowitz was like, Hey, you know, I'm giving you kudos. This treatment actually works because I mean, anybody that goes to a doctor like that, you know, my meds each month were 2,500, my labs each month were 4,500 emails cost me, um, televisits cost me a thousand dollars. You're going to go into bankruptcy. So not only was the medication not working and I was getting worse, there's no way that I could afford this for however long I needed to do it. So um, the Buna protocol is where I was at, who I found. And, you know, like I said, Horowitz committed him was like, hey, this treatment actually worked. This guy is just doing it for free. Um, and so I think this guy is absolutely amazing and it works for me. So I changed my diet. I went vegan. Um, I've been vegan before, so I quit drinking. I went vegan. I started doing his protocol, which is like, you know, green dragon botanicals and his herbs. 
Um, I started buying all the books, doing all the research. And then I also paired with Woodland Essence and doing tinctures because tinctures can be stronger too. Um, having all that incorporated has put me where I am today. Which is where? Where are you today? Today, I am like crossing the finish line and in remission. I am on the highest dose. I am able to get out of bed. I am able to think. I am able to process. I am able to work out twice a day. Um, and like my mom said, you know, it's nice having her funny, you know, full of laughter, smiling, bundle of joy, daughter back and is able to see me do things and go back to having a normal life. But not only that, but like such a better life. Um, just because, I mean, for the longest time, I don't even know who I was. So I know that my friends and family didn't either. So now talk to us about the beauty of this experience. What part of this experience would you not have given back and how has it changed you in a way that makes you a better person? Um, for the better person part, um, finding everybody in the Lyme community I personally say, you know, on, on different platforms, I try to stay away from Facebook because there's a lot of misinformation that happens there. And that is not something that I would suggest to anybody. Um, on the Instagram platform, I have met so many kind people and I have watched stories of people and I've listened and I've learned and I have found resources and I've actually reached out to people, you know, and been like, hey, you know, I've enjoyed your story. This is mine. We've swapped different things. Um, and I've, you know, I, like I said, I'm vegan. I juice, you know, I've talked to a woman that had her and her daughter had Lyme disease and, you know, them doing their juicing journey actually helped them. And so I joined that group. And so, you know, love juice guru, we juice every single day and we share and we're like, we're going to do this and we get happy and excited. Um, so that's a huge turnaround. And so that it's, it's, it's just big win, you know, because you go from being, I call myself just a vessel and nobody was home. Um, for the longest time, I was just a body in a bed. There was nothing there. There was a, no reason to talk to me. I didn't have anything to talk about. Um, and you know, honestly, I, I'm not even sure what I would say if I had to say a whole anything. So, um, today, you know, everything feels better. You know, I can actually say the grass looks greener. You know, I'm excited to go outside. Does it scare me to go outside? Yes. Am I going to go outside anyways? Yes. Because the sun is shining and I want to be out there. So of course this is an audio podcast and folks cannot see you, but as someone who can see you, you are certainly the picture of health. And I, I, I want to compliment you and your family for Great, getting through this battle as well as you have. But I want to learn more about how you now learned about yourself. What did you learn about you that you didn't know before you went on this journey? And how are you able to strip off of you some of the things that sort of your family envisioned for you or the educational system envisioned for you? How are you now more aware of who you are because you went through this journey? Oh my gosh. Um, this entire thing has been a life experience journey in itself. And I mean that to the fullest extent. Um, now I am at a place where, you know, my mom has always told me, and I know my family's all in the medical background, but you know, my mom has always told me like, you're great with kids. You're great with the elderly. You're great with this. And I've heard that my entire life, you know, um, I speak at a lot of different things just because I love to write and I'm a good writer, but I'm at the point now where like, I would love to help people on their journey. I want to be able to be a voice of reason, a voice of hope, a voice on the end of a telephone call being like, you can do this, you know? Um, and that's where I'm at because I know what it's like to go through the waters and feel like you're not gonna come out. I know what it feels like to feel like you are sinking and it is never going to get better. Um, so, you know, going through all of these things, you know, I have my creative side back. I'm able to be able to work with my plants and grow my business and, you know, do fun things and enjoy time with my niece and my nephew. And my nephew looks up to me because, you know, I played soccer and now that's what was going to be my career. Um, and now he's, you know, he is 12 years old and now he wants to be a professional soccer player and, you know, did play for a sporting Casey Academy. So, you know, he and his head 
um, he is going to be a professional soccer player like his aunt. So it's great to like be able to get out and enjoy life with my family, my friends. Um, and today, you know, life looks a lot different. You know, I don't want to be in a corporate world where I go to a job where, you know, I work a nine to five and I come home and I'm not satisfied. That's, that's not who I want to be these days. These days, I want to be somebody who is there, who can help, who can be somebody you know, even if it's on a hotline or through you know the website I'm creating, you know, I want to be able to help people. I want to be able to say I'm a voice of reason. I am a perfect example. Um, I would be willing to share my ex experiences with you, even though we've talked on this podcast. There's a lot of things that get you know down and dirty, you know, and so I just want to be able to be there and let people know that you can get through this and it is possible. I'm going to ask you for one more bit of assistance. Uh, our final question to all of our guests is if God forbid your mom came walking into your room right after this podcast and she had a tick biting her on her arm, what would you recommend that she would do so that she wouldn't have to go on a terrible chronic Lyme disease journey? You know, you asked me this question and, um, and my thing, and I, when I read it, I started sweating, but since you've changed it around to my mom, um, I immediately would put her on the Buna protocol and she knows that it works. And I would get her on the tinctures. There is nothing in there that involves antibiotics. You know, his books um, are very easy to understand. You know, I also incorporated medical medium. He is a huge part of my life too, you know? And so she has the medical medium books. She knows who Buna is. She knows the herbs that I buy. She knows the protocols and she's aware of Wilden Essence. I would get her lined up just like she got me lined up when she would make my pill bags and everything else for AM, PM, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but I would get her set up and get going. I would not hesitate for a second. I would not even, you know, we can send the tick off. We can do the test, whatever, but this is what we're starting and we're starting it today. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Ashley Bold. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Ashley and her Lyme disease journey, please visit her Instagram page at The Awakened State. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided by our past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to offer to us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get the automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us an honest review or rating on iTunes or on our website. As always, we thank you for listening.